When I graduated from high school, I took a vacation with two of my buddies uh, as kind of a celebration trip. In fact, actually, those buddies would be Josh's roommates shortly after taking that trip. And we went camping in the North Carolina mountains, and I had one of those great formative experiences in my life camping with my buddies, growing up camping. But we were backpacking and walking through a trail. I had a very heavy pack. It was extremely heavy. And uh, made it to the point, uh, walking through, looking for water. I was motoring along, very tired, not kind of thinking that carefully. And, you know, you hit that point in your stride when you're walking, you know, every step, you have that point where you're now committed to a step and you can't not step. I mean, you have a whole list of options. You can take a short step. You can take a long step. You can try to jump, but you're definitely going to step. That was the moment when I looked down and I saw the snake. And I could only see about this much of the snake, but it was about that big around all the way across. It was a rather large snake. Now, of course, in that moment, you don't really have a ton of time to think, or at least people that think as uh, slowly as I do when it comes to that. And I can say it was probably the only time in my entire life where I remember thinking, what is that terrible noise? And realizing it was me screaming because the snake had scared me. The whole story is actually, honestly, just to get you to the point where you think about and remember and understand that feeling of that point in your step where you can't not step. It's, it's the break in your stride is the technical term. It's the point where you're going to move forward. It's now just a matter of how far and where you land. John is telling us this entire book, it's in essence a sermon of sorts, attempting to leverage the reader into that point where their stride breaks. Where they interact with Christ. And as you listen and as you read and as you understand, you come to a a realization that I have to do something with Jesus. It may be a short step. It may be a long step. But I have to do something with him. I can't ignore him. I can't turn a blind eye. I can't tune him out. I can't, you know, white noise. I I can't ignore him. The whole point of the book of John is to say, what are you going to do? How are you going to handle the Lord Christ? This passage, even further, John turns the screws for the reader as we're forced to kind of look at the world through Pilate's eyes, unpleasant eyes, but to look at the world through his experience, again, forcing the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? There is no indifference allowed. There is no kind of blah response. What are you going to do with Jesus. And you remember in the story here, Jesus has been betrayed by his friend. He's been arrested. He's been tried by the Jews in this farce of a trial. It's a false trial. It happens in violation of so many of their laws, we can't even count them. It takes place at night. It has false witnesses. He is uh, asked to testify against himself. All these things that are illegal by their own rules. And instead, they take him to Pilate to have him killed. Pilate, in our previous sermon, begins to interact with Jesus and ask him questions to find out what kind of man he is. Is he a rebel? Is he a traitor? Is he this political zealot? Is he dangerous? And Pilate comes to a conclusion. 
It's where he started in verse 38. He, he goes to talk to the Jews and he goes back out to them and says, Look, I, I find no guilt in this guy. I mean, I may not like him. I may not agree with him, but I look at this guy and I can't say he's done anything wrong. He hasn't broken any laws. He's not, you know, a, a political zealot that's going to overthrow the government. He's not some great rebel leader. He's an innocent man. Let him go. Leave him be. Let's be done with this. But instead, the Jews, which you remember in the story, are the ones that have the Old Testament. They're the ones who think they know God. They're the ones who think they understand all of life. And these Jews are saying, no, we want Jesus dead. <coughs> Not another day with this man who claims to be God. Not another day with this one who proclaims himself the Son of God. In fact, instead, we'll take Barabbas. And it's actually in this part where Pilate kind of tips his hand as the kind of man he is. In verse 38, he explains that Jesus is innocent. And then in verse 39, he kind of tries to take the, the easy way out. He tries to give them the easy option, the way that kind of makes things disappear where we don't actually have to deal with it all. And he says, look, I know it's Passover. You guys have a custom. I I can let one guy go. Just take Jesus. I mean, he's right here in front of you. Just let the guy go. I know he didn't do anything wrong. Just let him go. And the Jews tipping their hands, showing their heart, showing the nature of the human condition, say, no, we we want Barabbas instead. A a guy who's a convicted murderer, who's a convicted robber, and is actually a political rebel. The very guy that we said Jesus is, he's that guy. We want him instead. You have to understand the hypocrisy of what they've just said. They've sent Jesus to Pilate for a specific set of alleged crimes. And the guy that they asked to be released has been convicted of all of those crimes. So Pilate, again, seeking the lowest common denominator, finding the easiest way out, what's the simple solution, takes Jesus in in verse 1 and has him flogged. He hasn't beaten. And uh, we, again, in polite company and polite society in a room full of children, probably not going to go into all the details that that involved. Let's just say that Rome had two types of beatings. Beating number one was only given to those that were going to be crucified. And the reason being was because it so debilitated and broke you that there was no way you would live through it longer than just a matter of hours. And it's the perfect way to weaken a guy for a crucifixion. Remember, crucifixion, you die by suffocation when you run out of energy and you hang yourself. Your, your diaphragm collapses on itself and you can't breathe. So we'll beat a guy to a hair's breadth from death and then crucify him so he dies quickly. Second beating is one that's in, designed for pain. It's not designed to kill you. It's not designed to debilitate you. It's designed to make you hurt and hurt badly. And the king of creation... The agent of creation, the second person of the Trinity, God taking on man, goes through that second option. With a petty little tyrant, ruling in a petty little land, administering a beating designed to make him bleed. And the Lord Jesus endures it. 
And then, as if that weren't enough, Pilate hasn't beaten, but the guards take it further. They don't just stop with the flogging. They don't just top, stop with this thing that would, you know, kind of tears his back open all along the way. They proceed to mock him in the process. They make him a crown. They place it on his head. They give him a purple robe, probably one of the guard's robes himself, one of the soldiers that he's been using. And then they begin to mock him. They proceed to in a line, walk up to him and salute him and then slap him, salute him and then punch him, salute him and ridicule him. And the whole point that John has been building us to is, again, to to step inside the text and to wrestle with it. There's only two options as to who this guy Jesus is, really. He's an evil man that deserves all that he's getting. Or he's the very son of God, and we're witnessing the greatest crime in human history. The beauty here is the irony of what they've done, though. As these soldiers ridicule Christ and they actually display his very character. Dressing him as a king. Proclaiming him to be king. Hail, saluting him. In Now granted, it's all in ridicule. But they've missed the point. They've, they've nailed exactly who this king is. They've got it exactly right. He is the king of all creation. And yet he's the one who is going to suffer in just a little bit for the sins of his people. They get a spot on, though they don't realize what they're doing. In verse 4, we see Pilate again showing his hand, showing his heart, what he intends to do. He goes out in front of the Jews, and he brings Jesus with him. Again, remember at this point, he's been beaten such that his back is torn open and bleeding. He's been punched and slapped and wrecked by the guards. His head has the crown of thorns. He's bleeding. And he looks like the saddest, most pitiful king in human history. And verse 4, Pilate seeks to play on that. He brings Jesus in front of the Jews and says, See, look, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So if I found him guilty, he'd already be dead. Like, let's be clear. If I thought he were a guilty man, he would already be dead. I'm bringing him out to you because I know he's not guilty. And now I'm going to show you what your not guilty man looks like. In verse 5, Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate says, look at the man. Now, this is actually not the way that a lot of times we think of it. He's not mocking Christ here. Instead, he's actually attempting to play on the sympathy of the Jews. Look at the man. Look at him. Look at him in the faces. He's bleeding to death in front of you. Look at the man. You want this one killed. How dangerous can he be? He's probably not going to be able to stand upright for the rest of his life were he to have a long one. The beating is too severe. Who knows if he's blind or been blinded by the thorns. Think about the torment he's going through. This is the guy that you find so dangerous. Pilate, again, seeking the easy way out, seeking the lowest common denominator, is trying to play on their sympathies to say, you really feel threatened by this guy.
And verse 6 displays perfectly the human heart. I mean, you're in a tough time finding a a better illustration of the human condition, what your heart looks like and what my heart looks like apart from Christ. Verse 6, when the chief priests, when the ones who know the most, when the ones who have the majority of the Old Testament, if not all of it, memorized, they had most of it memorized by the time they were 12. These are the guys that know it all. When the chief priests... And the officers of the church, they, they saw him, and this is where you think, oh, they're going to have pity. Oh, they're going to look at a man who's been beaten within a hair's breadth of life. They're going to look at a man who's been tortured for hours. They're going to look at him and have compassion. And instead, what do they do? Crucify him, crucify him. Give him a death. Give him a Roman death. In fact, actually, give him the worst of Roman deaths, the kind that's reserved for criminals, the kind that's it's so horrible, it's so bad, you're not even allowed to do it to Roman citizens. This is an awful punishment. This is what we give the worst of the worst. You see, our government, we have prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. We have a design for punishment and for death to be administered with kindness and gentleness in so much as we can. Rome does not have that. And crucifixion is a notoriously horrid way to die. Ultimately, you kill yourself because when you run out of energy, your legs give out and, like I said, you suffocate. Terrible way to go. And here, those that know the Old Testament the most, those that know the Messiah's promises the most, those that have studied the Scriptures the most are the ones calling out for His death. Pilate again, mixed between this laziness and craving for the easy way out and his abject hatred for the Jews. Interesting, a man governing a people that he absolutely hates. Responds, take him yourself, you do it. He's not guilty. He hasn't done anything wrong. I can't kill a man who hasn't done anything wrong. You take him, you do it, you've got your own ways. Stone him to death the way the Jews do. I'll even turn a blind eye for it to happen. You go handle your own business. Don't make Rome kill him, you handle it. In verse 7, they come back again. We have a law according to that law. He ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. And this is interesting. The Jews recognize the heart of the issue. Jesus is not simply a good man. He's not simply a moral teacher. He's not a guy who had really good ideas. If you watch the History Channel, they will suggest that he is all of those things and only those things. The reality of the matter, the scriptures understand, and the people that Jesus lived with understood. He claimed one thing above all else. He claimed to be the living God. And they hate him for it. They don't hate him because he's a good man. No one hates a good man. They don't hate him because he's kind, because he's fed the poor, because he's raised the dead. They hate him because he claims to be God. They explain it. Verse 7. This is why we want him dead. He's, He's claimed to be the very son of God. This is the reason he can't live anymore. Verse 8, this is actually the point at which Pilate enters into a new state. 
Not just being afraid of men. He's been afraid of men his whole life. He's been afraid of the Jews in front of him, his whole leadership, his whole time and authority. But now suddenly something else enters in. He's afraid of the gods. He's afraid of uh, those that he might not know. His superstition enters in. And verse 8, he gets quite, uh, quite afraid. He begins to tremble. And verse 9, he comes back in out in front of the crowd and brings Jesus with him and leads off with a, a really profound question. Where are you from, man? Who are What are you doing? They say you're the son of God. Are you, are you from Olympus? Are, are you from? Where, where are you from? You seem like a poor traveling carpenter to me, but what are you, who are you? And Jesus gives him no answer. Again, that that would actually probably not be that uncommon of a response to a man who's been beaten as badly, by a response by a man who has been beaten as badly as Christ has. But it offends Pilate, and so he answers in verse 10. It's a little bit stronger than this. To me, you're not going to talk? You won't won't listen to me? You're not going to answer me? Do you not know who I am? I'm the guy who can release you. I'm the guy who can kill you. You're not going to answer me? And Jesus gives an absolutely staggering answer. I mean, it's jaw-dropping. Beaten half to death, tortured, mocked, ridiculed, shamed, having his own people seeking his murder, and his response to the petty little tyrant that's in charge of him says, Oh yeah, by the way, you have no say over me except for the authority that God has given. I mean, that's what he said. You will have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, and you're exactly where you're supposed to be because God has ordained this from the beginning. This is no mistake. I've not made it here by accident. This isn't the, the unlucky life of an unlucky man. This is the King of kings and the Lord of glory having arranged his plan perfectly and even as the forces of evil try to overthrow it, all they do is accomplish his work. All he's done is win. And now Jesus explains actually here a word of kindness and compassion to Pilate. Again, jaw-dropping, staggering response. God is sovereign. God has ordained all of this to happen. You have authority that has been given to you from him. Therefore, in light of that, Pilate, you're not even the guy that's the most guilty in the room. If we want to talk about really guilty people, it's not you, Pilate. It's the Jews outside. It's Judas who betrayed me. It's Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. It's all of the Jews, the people who know better, the ones who are in charge. Those are the ones who have delivered me over to you. They're the guilty ones. And again, can you imagine how for Pilate, how staggering of a response that has to be? A guy who's considered to be a political traitor. That's what they're trying to leverage Jesus as being, who they want Rome to kill because he's overthrowing Rome. And what does he do right there in front of the man who's had him beaten within a hair's breadth of his life? And when it comes time to answer him, what does he say? Sir, I believe you're in a position of authority because God has placed you there. And I believe that there are guilty people in the room and you're not at the top of the list. 
it's all of them. I mean, it's, wow. I mean, he's not cursing at Pilate. He's not uh, calling down legions of angels to destroy Pilate. He's speaking kindly to Pilate, the man who's in process of killing him. He's speaking kindly to him and acknowledging the blame ultimately falls on someone else. In verse 12, you see the response from then on Pilate sought to release him. Well, no kidding. He's never seen a response like this. I mean, out of all of the, the dozens and hundreds of men that Pilate's had killed, how many do you think, how many of them do you think, even at the worst of it all, it, it work hard to excuse him? Look, I know you're in authority because God's placed you there. And I know the people that are ultimately guilty. And you're in the list, but you're not at the top. However, Pilate, the petty man, the petty little tyrant, the small little man who rules a small little kingdom, has the ace of spades played against him. The Jews lead with the trump card of all trump cards, the one who will win the game. They say, you, sir, if you release this man, you are releasing a political activist who will overthrow Rome. And if you release him, we will report that you do not support Rome. So verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he's totally afraid of the men in front of him. He kills him. I mean, it's really what happens. We could skip to the end of the story. He sits in his seat of judgment. This is kind of the formal proceeding. It's at the end of the day. It's Friday. He brings Jesus out in front of them and out of pure hatred to the Jews with an innocent man standing next to him. He points to the innocent man and he says, mocking the Jews with bitter rage, this is your king. Look at him. Having no idea that he's exactly right. 100%, 100% correct, this is their king. The king of kings and the Lord of glory, the one that the scriptures have foretold, the one the entire Old Testament talks about, standing in their midst, this is their king. In 15 and 16, the deal is struck, the deal is done, and crucifixion is ordered. You see, John tells the story, as we've said, to to force us into a decision, to force us into doing something with Christ, where we don't just read the story and go, well, that was neat and all. I mean, the pastor got excited about it. That was fun. I got to watch him get all kind of, you know, twitchy and stuff like he does when he gets really uh, into it, and then move on and forget about it the rest of the day. You see, instead, what John is doing and what the Holy Spirit are doing is to try to force the story so that it worms into our brain and worms into our hearts. So we're forced to answer that question. Who do I think Jesus is? Or as Pilate asks, where is he from? Is this a poor, uneducated carpenter from Nazareth? Or is this the Lord of glory stepping out of heaven, putting away his glory for a season and coming onto earth? Because that's the question that is ultimately asked, and the answers that you arrive at are completely different. If you think that he's just a normal dude, a normal guy, well, you're going to have a normal response. You're going to say, well, (laughs) it stinks to be him. Sorry, I'm glad I'm not in that time. 
However, if we believe what the scriptures say about Jesus and what he has said about himself, that he is the Son of God, there are a multitude of responses that we are to have to a passage like this. First, we should grieve. What we're watching here is the greatest travesty, the the greatest violation of justice in human history. And we've seen some bad stuff even in our lifetime. But what's happening here, the Lord of glory, the truly innocent man of men, is being executed. Secondly, we should marvel. We we mourn at the loss. We mourn at the lack of justice. We mourn at the evil that's taking place. But we marvel at Christ's perfection, composure, and ordination of it all. I mean, at the climax here, Pilate's like, where do you come from? What are you doing? And what does Jesus say? Look, this is happening because it's been planned from the beginning. This plan is happening exactly according to the way the one who's in charge. And Pilate, you're not that guy. I mean, you're, you're, you're big in this little setting, but God is the one who orders it all. A marvel at the Lord Jesus. I mean, you think about, again, this is what he knew he was walking into in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what he knew he was walking into. When you pray so hard that you sweat drops of blood, you you burst your capillaries, it makes sense. You know this is what you're walking into. And we should praise. You see, this is the plan that God has ordained and agreed upon prior to creation itself so that when Father, Son, and Spirit create inside time and space, this is what the Spirit knows. I mean, this is what the Son knows is His task from the very foundations of creation. When we go back to Genesis and we hear the promise from the very beginning that the Lord would deliver the people of God through one who would be born later. That Christ, that's the plan. That's what would happen. This promise that is expanded in Noah, it's expanded in Abraham, it's expanded in David, it's expanded in Jeremiah, it's all fulfilled in the Lord Christ. We should marvel at it. And then lastly, a passage like this I mean, realistically, in the American church today, and I know for many of us, we we talk about a lot of the practical passages a lot of the time, and we should. I'm preaching on wisdom on Sunday evenings at evening worship. Why? Because I want you to be wise, and you should be. And we think a lot about how should I pray, and that's good, you should. And we think a lot about, well, what does it mean to be pure in this time and age? And that's right, and we should. The, The one danger with those emphases, and all being right and good ones is that we only keep those emphases which are at my level. They deal with my wisdom. They deal with my purity. They deal with my obedience. They deal with my prayer. They deal with my life and lose a little bit of just the wonder. The depth of what God is doing and what God has done. To lose a little bit of the angst and the tension of the passage. To lose a little bit of the the freedom of what the gospel is. the, The good news of Christ. To lose so much of what God has done at the expense of what is happening with me. Put differently, to be so consumed with me that I forget about him. And passages like this are fantastic for it. 
Because honestly, I'm not really in this passage much, and neither are you. But it's all about Christ, who has lived and who has died and who has raised for us. It's also appropriate for passages like this as we think about the table that we're going to have in just a little bit. This is the table of a king. And it's interesting that his kingship is announced really in a multitude of ways. And you might be able to guess that something's a little different about this king when the first time it's really announced, he's sitting in an animal trough in the middle of like a barn. And the people that are going to celebrate him are the social outcasts. And oh yeah, by the way, it's not even acknowledged enough amongst his peers, so God sends angels to highlight it. (laughs) Something's going to be a little different about this guy. In fact, his life will build in perfection and glory and perfection and glory and perfection and glory until we arrive at the end of John and hear this great king of kings is going to be murdered by a petty tyrant uh, of Rome with the Jews, his own people, rejecting him. But why? Because that's not where the story ends, is it? This Jesus is executed in a chapter. He dies and he stays dead. For a period of time. But he doesn't stay dead forever. In fact, actually, he's raised and he ascends into glory. And his kingship is going to be announced again in the future. Only this time it's going to look a little different. Instead of it being announced with shepherds and wise men from a far off country and a, a poor teenage, you know, lady married to a carpenter in the middle of a barn with animals and, you know, critters and creepy crawlies and all kinds of unhygienic thing for babies to be born in. The next time he announces his kingship, it's with the glory cloud of God. And the angels arrive, and these beautiful creatures of burning fire will pale in comparison to the beauty of the king. And this table is a table that reminds us of both, backwards and forwards, that we remember his death until he comes. This king, born as a carpenter, arriving as the Lord of glory. May it be that we prepare ourselves as we sing and as we pray so that we would be ready in so much as we are able to feast with the King of kings and the Lord of glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask your help. We ask now that your spirit would work in us to convict us of sin, to fill us with the righteousness of Christ, that we might find forgiveness in him. Lord, we ask that we would not trust in our own merits. And Lord, if there are any in our midst that are trusting in their own efforts for salvation, would you please convict them now that they might find freedom and joy in Jesus. Give life and light, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.